I'm Susan, and this is Karen, of course, then. Um, and what we'd like to do um, to get started, we're going to talk about um, how the impact of having case managers in a pain clinic setting has been very effective and, and resulted in positive outcomes. Um, but first, let me ask you, how many here already have case managers in your pain service line or pain clinic? <laughs> okay, and how many are thinking about having a case manager, social worker, complex care? Okay, great. Um, and that's what we're here to see. Um, we'd love to learn from other people what they're doing if, if they find that, that what we're doing is different. But um, let's get into it. I know this is the last session before dinner, and probably everybody's hungry and tired from the long day, so we'll make sure to get you out on time or maybe even a little bit earlier. So anyways, um, let's get started. And as always, keep calm and call the case manager. Um, frequently with our population, we have patients who do get upset, um, and we do have problems that come up, and, and there's the worry of how are we going to solve this. So we thought we'd start out with saying, just keep calm and call one of us. We have nothing to disclose, either one of us. And our learning objectives um, discuss how to explain case management, or implement, it should say implement, case management model into a multidisciplinary staff pain clinic. Um, identify the multiple roles that a complex care case manager can fulfill in a pain clinic. Identify the data collection to show how complex care case managers perform care coordination. Performing care coordination can improve patient satisfaction outcomes. Recognize the impact that um, complex care case managers can have in diffusing crisis situations in the pain clinic. I'm sure we've all encountered that. And describe which patient cases are appropriate referrals in which cases are not appropriate referrals to the case manager. Um, for brevity, I will just continue to say case manager rather than the entire um, title, just to kind of keep things moving. Now, um, Stanford Pain Management decided to try something new. Um, they had one of the first programs of its kind to recognize that having case managers can have a significant impact on care coordination for patients that resulted in more successful and positive patient outcomes. Um, so what we wanted to do, because the, the role itself um, is used in different organizations. Um, I once worked for an organization where a complex care case manager meant I received cases on patients who had three comorbidities or more. Um, at Stanford, the complex care case manager position is actually a, a, what I call a hybrid of sorts. It combines the, the talents, the expertise, the skills of both a social worker and a nurse case manager. So for our reference here, it will be the hybrid position that we're talking about. So to kind of give a little bit of foundation, some of you may already know this. Sometimes we find that doctors don't know what case managers and social workers do. We want to kind of give a little brief uh, definition. So CMSA, which is the Case Managers Society of America, uh, first published their standards of practice in 1995, and their original definition of what a case manager or case management was, um, it's a collaborative process which assesses, plans, implements, coordinates, monitors, and evaluates options and services to meet an individual's health needs through communication and available resources to promote quality, cost-effective outcomes. Um, so then it stayed that way until 2002, about seven years later, they decided to update it to include client advocacy. 
Um, a lot of you who know case managers or maybe even are case managers um, know that client advocate, being client advocates is very important for us. Um, when we take on a case, that patient is somebody that we're trying to help, and so we advocate for them because a lot of our patients don't know how to navigate the healthcare system, don't know how to deal with their insurance companies, don't know how to talk to their doctors. So we become their advocate in helping with those, all those different things. Um, 2002, they decided that the definition didn't need changing. And then in 2016, just a couple years ago, um, they did, with the importance of patient safety, they wanted to include the phrase patient safety into the definition. Um, so we want to look for available resources to promote patient safety, whether it's assistive devices at home, if there's domestic violence going on, what can we do to um, you know, make the situation safer at home? Do we need to do a, a APS report? Um, and are also doing a valuation of the home to determine if, if they're going home in a wheelchair, if they uh, can't maneuver stairs, but they have stairs at home, how can we make the home environment more safe? And also, too, if a patient's inpatient, it's determining whether or not there's a safe discharge involved. Frequently, um, case managers and social workers will say, well, we don't want them to go home yet because it's not going to be a safe discharge because this isn't in place yet or um, the this, this situation at home is still too unstable or, or um, anything along those lines. So we want to make sure that uh, patient safety is a top priority when we're working with the patient. Um, and now Karen's going to talk about social work since she's a social worker. Hi, I'm Karen. Not sure if my, oh, it is on, <laughs> sorry. Um, wanted to just give a uh, brief definition of what social work is, um, and it's from the National Association for Social Work. It's their definition. Um, basically, social workers are graduates um, of schools of social work. You could have a BA, um, you can have a master's, or you could have a doctorate. Um, in my case, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. Um, social workers use their knowledge, skills, and expertise to provide social services. Um, one of the things I really value about social work is, first of all, you can do social work in so many different settings, such a wide definition. Um, and that social work works with individuals. It can work with couples. It can work with families. It can work with groups or whole communities. Um, and that has been something that's been able to also happen within the pain clinic. Um, I also, one of the big things about social work that I really love is that we um, are all about self-determination and um, helping people to figure out how to problem solve as well as learning coping mechanisms. Um, we help people obtain needed resources. Um, we're kind of like a liaison or facilitator in interactions between, it could be family members, um, often in the medical setting, it is obviously between um, care providers and the patient. We can act as sort of a middle person. Um, and that's my basic definition of social work. What has social work, just in my own experience, um, I have spent the majority of my social work career um, in a medical setting, uh, past 18 years, which is hard to believe, um, in a hospital setting, working um, at a variety of different medical services, um, all the way from the emergency room um, to the ICU, 
um, as well as working on inpatient psychiatric units. One of the things that's been positive about that, it, it kind of came from a not positive spot. I worked in a lot of small community hospitals originally. So at the time, there was a lot of um, community hospitals that were closing. So staff was being eliminated. So part of who I was was I wanted to keep my job. So I used to say, call me Gumby. I'm flexible. Put me anywhere. <laughs> so I ended up working on all possible types of floors in a hospital setting, um, which I have found very useful um, at the pain clinic. You have it. So um, now we were just going to discuss, because we do often get this question, um, and there is a lot of overlap between well, what is what is social work and what is case management. So I kind of just wanted to highlight some of the, um, from the social work perspective, um, what is social work. A huge aspect of us is obviously focusing on, I feel, the person in environment, the biopsychosocial um, status of a person. Um, I don't like to be myopic. I like to view everything that's going on in the patient's life. Um, another thing which is really developing and maintaining um, a positive therapeutic alliance um, with patients. Um, and this can be done also even just through um, when you're in the process of linking patients to services. Um, the relationship can be developed. Um, and, and then just that we, we demonstrate our areas of expertise um, by navigating complex healthcare systems, such as Stanford, and um, social service systems as well. Again, very psychosocially focused, um, with the focus of helping families and their caregivers um, access resources, but I think most importantly, um, encouraging them to become um, independent, um, to maximize what they have, and really to focus on their health and well-being. Okay, and going back to um Nursing case management, um, we, with nursing case managers, we tend to address the medical um, nursing needs or personal care needs of the patient um, and what we need to do to enable them to return to their regular level of functioning or the regular home environment. Um, this comes in, into play when we're like ordering a durable medical equipment, um, if they need a hospital bed, if they need a wheelchair at home, um, if it's a more traumatic case, do they need a Hoyer lift um, and, a, a, you know, any kind of bedside commode or any kind of DME that they might need at home. We also arrange the home health care. Um, we, we arrange possibly for a community social worker through home health to, uh, to go into the patient's home. Um, we arrange for outpatient physical therapy or home PT. Um, we can arrange for all sorts of types of services. Um, we also if they're in the hospital, we arrange the transportation um, for them to get from one place to another, to another level of care. We arrange transfers to, to uh, skilled nursing facilities. We also identify the most cost-effective resources while still maintaining quality of care, um, especially in today's environment as far as health care. Everything can be very, very costly, especially for patients who are on limited or fixed incomes. So it's our responsibility to try and find those resources that will still meet their needs but not put a financial strain on the patient. And so sometimes it means finding alternative resources of, for financial assistance. 
Um, we also do conduct a comprehensive assessment. If we do have home health care in the house, they do have to have a visiting nurse who oversees the care of the home. Um, and we also do an assessment not only of the patient, but also the, the family and or the caregiver um, to see how much are they able to do in helping the patient. Um, we also support the systems that identify actual or potential problems. Um, we're looking for obstacles or barriers to care um, and what can we do to overcome those for the patient. Um, we set healthcare goals. Anybody who's a nurse in here, I'm sure you've, you remember the whole the, um, chore, very, very tedious chore of creating care plans in the hospital and for the outpatient setting. Um, where we're identifying what are the major problem areas, how are we going to meet those um, problems, and what are the outcomes we're looking forward to. And, um, and that is a continual assessment and reevaluation of um, what those goals are. So um, our definitions both contain a lot of terms and concepts, um, they, and it's assessment, planning, facilitation, care coordination, evaluation, being an advocate, as I mentioned before, um, we're working with the individual, we're working with the family and or the caregiver. We're looking at a comprehensive picture of their health care needs um, or what we, lear we learn in nursing is a holistic um, view of treatment and caring for a patient. Communication is key with anything in health care. We have to not only be communicating with the patient and family, we also have to be communicating with the treatment team, letting them know what's going on and... and uh, anticipating any issues that we might see coming up. Again, available resources, um, patient safety. Key thing is quality of care, even unlimited resources, and um, again, having cost-effective outcomes. Get, having the best outcome with utilizing the least amount of, of money. Um, now, also, too, to add to all those uh, skills we have in our little toolbox, um, Stanford also has a best practice in patient communications that we also utilize, and it's called CI Care. You know, I'm sure everybody, are, you know, at your organization, you have a, or tons of acronyms for every little thing. And CI Care is a framework for structuring the best practice communications that we want to utilize, not only with our patients and their family, but also with our coworkers. We implement um, this communication system to. Um, to also treat our, our coworkers the way we also want to treat our patients and families. So um, what the acronym stands for, I'm just going to touch on these briefly. Connect with people by calling them by their name or the name they prefer. Um, introduce yourself and what you do. So we always explain what our role is in the pain clinic when we introduce ourselves to patients. Communicate what you're going to do, how long it should take, how it will impact the patient. And then ask permission of the patient. Can, is it okay if I come in the room? Is it okay if I talk to you while you're, you know, your friend or family member is here? Is it okay if, if we share information with you while they're here? Um, so we always ask permission for that. Um, any undertaking, any activity, we ask if that's okay with the patient as well. We respond to their questions or request, request promptly. And again, anticipating a patient's needs. And then we exit courteously and an explanation of what will come next. So, um, and, and I do have to say, in being in various organizations throughout my, my case management career, um, which is, I'm ashamed, or I'm not ashamed, but embarrassed to say is more than 25 years in case management, um, we, I, I do see Stanford really does implement the CI care tenants, um, that we really do use those with patients, and we really are that way with our, our coworkers. 
um, for the most part. I mean, everybody's going to have a bad day or whatever. So um, how did the idea to hire complex care case managers come about? So that leads into um, what exactly is a complex care case manager. And so the reason Susan and I just both described social work and case management is because the position is, as Susan was saying earlier, really like a hybrid, I'm going to call a combo platter of both of these positions. Um, So it's combining the skills, the expertise, and the knowledge and the capabilities of both of these roles. Um, It can be, um, at at Stanford, it can be um, someone who's a licensed clinical social worker, um, or it could be a um, a registered nurse with case management experience. Um, One of the qualifications also is that you must have extensive experience in either one of those, either social work or case management. Um, I don't believe we have any um, complex care case managers that are hired sort of directly out of, out of school. Um, obviously, experience in care management. And we've also found, um, Susan and I, that it's quite helpful to have um, a great deal of experience in the behavioral health uh, it's not necessary, but it's been helpful. And luckily, both Susan and I have extensive experience working in both inpatient um, and outpatient psychiatry. So um, one of the things that really actually pulled me to this role, I actually was the first complex care case manager at Stanford. Mm-hmm. Um, and I did that role actually on their inpatient psychiatry unit. But one of the things that pulled me to it is that it really... Um, pulled from my, my 18 years of experience of doing both of those roles and pulled together both the medical and the psychiatric piece. Um, and so that's what pulled me toward the complex care case manager position, and in particular at the pain clinic. Um, also skills to have definitely experience in crisis management. Um, as Susan was mentioning before, we... A lot of our patients come to us really in a state of, of crisis due to having been in chronic pain for a very long period of time. Um, so skills in um, assessing for suicidality, um, homicidality, um, as, and we kind of have noticed um, that there's a couple sort of pathways. I wanted to just mention to talk about the suicidality and homicidality that we often um, will sort of see that come out um, within the clinic. Um, some of that is related to um, patients who are coming to us from Stanford, I mean, to Stanford after having been to multiple other facilities um, or places um, looking for answers or, or diagnoses and for relief. And um, Often we are kind of the final, the final hope sometimes by the time the patient has come to Stanford. And so sometimes when we get patients, they've been waiting a very long time period for um, this appointment. And um, when they arrive, if um, they're feeling and they learn about our modalities and how we work and they, and they realize they may not be getting that immediate answer and relief, we will often um, see that patients will express, you know, a lot of hopelessness and suicidality. Um, the other avenue that we see that in is, is where um, patients, um, where their primary care physician may have said that they're, 
no longer willing to prescribe opiates, and the patient comes to Stanford um, for a consultation. And we don't always know what has been communicated by the primary care physician. Um, and so the patient may show expecting, hey, I'm here, I'm going to get my opiates, um, and find out at their appointment that they're not going to be getting opiates. Um, we have worked hard to really set expectation prior to that first appointment. Um, and then finally, just a lot of the suicidality that we see is just patients that have been coping or, um, for a very long period of time um, with chronic pain, and they're tired um, and feeling um, hopeless and helpless. So the crisis management has been a huge skill um, that Susan and I have needed to um, rely on and, and really hone in on um, with this particular population. I just wanted to speak to that, particularly a little bit more at length, to that particular key point because it is a, a large piece of our job. Um, we find extensive experience working with insurances um, is helpful, including Medicare and Medicaid, um, and understanding what they will cover and what they do not cover. Um, helpful to have uh, workers' compensation experience. Um, not necessary, but helpful. Susan had worked um, extensively with a workers' compensation system. I had worked, when I worked on an acute rehab, a lot with a workers' compensation. And then finally, <laughs> um, a sense of humor. Um, as, you know, sometimes things can get rough and rocky, but if you, to keep that sense of humor in check. So, um, oh, okay. Um, so there, um, what kind of started the ball rolling with Stanford, I'm sure a lot of you have, um, have heard of the Prescani patient surveys that are completed after a patient has been seen in, the, in a clinic. Um, and what Stanford found, the pain clinic found, was that a lot of patients um, either were falling through the cracks, um, they were not particularly having a lot of satisfaction with their appointments or what or follow-up, um, and that they were often asking for case management and social workers to help out with them. Um, some of our patients, are, if not most of them, are pretty savvy when it comes to what social workers and case managers do. Um, and so they uh, frequently would ask for that, and the pain clinic was noticing that, both on the Prescani results and from um, patients' verbal feedback. Um, so the two main areas was that they were needing help with uh, providing psychosocial support and then also focused care coordination. Again, um, patients would sometimes say that they'd have a good appointment, but then they'd leave and then they would not hear from anybody again. And they needed, um, or they would be given instructions on what to do next before their next appointment, and then they wouldn't follow through and, um, because nobody was nudging them in, into uh, making an appointment with uh, the specialist that the doctors recommended or uh, getting the treatment like physical therapy or whatever. Nope. Okay. Oh, okay. Now I hope everybody can see this. Um, when we first saw this, I, I, we both felt related to it very well. Um, when we have patients, because of our title, we do get the really complicated cases. It's, it's not, um, you know, always that, uh, <laughs> you know, we're going to get very simple ones. But sometimes when we hang up from the phone and we've had a particularly rough phone call with a patient and they've been very frustrated or upset, 
but they will hang up the call and say, I, I still don't know what it is they want. Um, and so this is kind of who are we, we're the clients or the patients, what do we want, we don't know. Um, and when do we want it, we want it now. Um, which is the general theme we see in a lot of our patients. Um, and I do remember when I was, uh, I have a degree in psychology, um, having a, a particular, uh, one professor who was very well thought of. He also did uh, private practice as well as teaching. And he um, had given us a poem that was written by a patient who was severely depressed. And it always stuck with me. There are certain things in our careers, I think, that kind of stick with us that certain people have, have uh, you know, extended to us either in teaching or working together. And one of the poems he, he sent out to us as homework um, for review was a, a severely depressed patient wrote a poem. And I can't remember all the content other than the title, which was, Please Hear What I'm Not Saying. Um, and I think a lot with our pain patients, especially those that are, are very depressed, that we have to sometimes really do an in-depth assessment to get to what is basically upsetting you or what, what are you fearful of or what is it you want us to do to help you. Um, and sometimes that takes time. And so, well, you know, like Karen mentioned about having flexibility and a sense of humor, we can look at this and laugh and say, oh, my God, that's like my, my every day. I run into that with my patients. We don't know what they want, but they want it now. Um, that we can uh, take it as a lesson that we do sometimes need to dig deeper and see what's underlying their anger and, and uh, uh, depression. So, so what did the pain clinic see as being the greatest need? So I think back to when I first started as the, I was like the first complex care case manager at the pain clinic, um, and one of one of the things that was became um, very clear is was really setting expectation with patients um, around what to expect from the pain clinic so that we could have more positive <laughs> relationships um, with patients and less um, of a, a mix match between um, expectations and what the patients um, want. So in, one of our greatest needs really was to do some education with the patients around what to expect from you know, Stanford Pain Management Clinic. How do we work? How do we operate? So in other words, um, you know, we're a multidisciplinary clinic. Um, you're going to see the doctor, the attending here, but you're also going to, you know, probably work with pain psychology and physical therapy, um, and that it's going to be a process. And so it's helpful to really set the stage for patients so that they don't show up and think, okay, well, where's my intervention? So if we explain that we need to do um, a full-on assessment before getting there, that, that can be really helpful in bringing some of that anxiety down. Um, another large piece of what we saw as the greatest need, um, really when I first started the at the clinic, I was given a list. We had been tracking um, what's called CRMs, which is our customer relationship management. So basically when patients call into the clinic, they're basically calling through a call center. And that call center then gets a message and sends it to us through a system, which is a CRM. And we noted that there were um, 
a, a sort of a cohort of patients that were frequently calling the clinic um, with all different types of, of needs. So when I first started, I can't really did some case reviews to look at this patient population and what were some of the similarities um, amongst a lot of these patients. And to find out, a, a lot of the similarities really were in, um, med, you know, obviously medical complexity, but a lot of psychosocial complexity as well. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we fettered out what was the greatest need. So then henceforth we realized that this particular population um, that was utilizing a lot of our, a lot of our staff's resources um, so that the case manager could kind of hone in and focus on these um, particular patients by, by really working with them directly to provide real focused case management. And um, as, as the bottom line says, they, uh, through the investigation that they did, um, and we'll get into a little bit more of what they, the results they found, um, they realized that one case manager was not going to do it with the number of high utilizers that we had and the number of, uh, and with the Press Ganey scores, that actually they needed two case managers. And that's, that's a little... Just from my experience working in different social work and case management departments, to request two right off the bat um, for a clinic that's already been in existence. Um, and we found out later that even our department was a little uh, confused as to how did the pain clinic get to hire two of us at the same time. We, were, we started about six weeks apart. Um, so that um, we'll kind of get into a little bit next. So who was involved in the development of the, of the role? Um, Originally, a social work case management department had created the role of the complex care case manager. Um, it is, again, it's a hybrid position, and I think it was of sorts that um, they wanted to have a career pathway where people felt like they were moving upward um, because sometimes with case managers, social work positions, and other facilities, it can kind of be a dead-end job. Other than salary increases, you're not really moving along. Um, so this was a position to strive for. Um, as Karen mentioned, she was the first one at Stanford that they hired. Um, obviously, she was successful because now we have many uh, complex care case managers along uh, across many different medical service lines. Um, and then I was the first nurse in the position. Uh, they tended to just have social workers to have the position originally, but when the pain clinic hired me um, as the first, you know, as a nurse, not realizing that a nurse had never had this job before. Um, Obviously, it's worked out because now they, when they post a position, when they have an opening, they say it can be an LCSW or a nurse. Um, so they contacted the social work um, department director and the managers of care coordination um, who assisted in developing the role and provided guidance on what it would take for the pain clinic to onboard us. Um, so they also consulted with the cancer team or the oncology department because um, they had already done this, where they'd hire several uh, care coordinators. I think now they're up to about eight or nine that they have across the different uh, types of cancer uh, units that they have. And um, so they talked to them about how did they go about implementing the role. Um, they also worked with human resources, and, um, and they also talked to the leadership, the director, um, and I believe it was the VP overseeing the director of social work case management, 
to ensure that the job description um, was what the, the pain clinic was trying to, uh, to accomplish by, by doing this role. Um, I already mentioned that. And then there was also um, several other roles within the Department of Social Work Case Management, and after much discussion, um, it was decided that because of the type of population that we work with, that they needed the, the top-level role, which was the complex care case manager. So that's why we're, it's just not a social worker and a case manager that you might see in the different clinics. It's the, the hybrid position. Um, so who was involved in the developing the role? Um, if your clinic or service line is, is interested in doing this, at the time it was our pain clinic chief who was involved in it. It was Dr. Uh, Michael Leong. Our pain clinic manager, who was Ann Cullen, um, our pain clinic operations manager, who's now the, the clinic chief, is Dr. Cow, and of course our chief division of pain management, who's Dr. Sean Mackey. Um, now, sometimes it's unheard of, like I said a little bit ago, that to get two roles filled at the same time, because these are, you know, kind of prestigious positions within the social work case management department, and they're also paid at a higher level. Um, so it was, I, I was kind of surprised when I did a little bit of, of research by talking with the, um, the clinic manager who's now moved on, and she told me that it really didn't, they didn't have that much trouble getting the roles approved. They did a lot of work up front in terms of making a case for why they needed these two positions, um, and they, they researched the roles, they did a lot of discussions with different departments, um, and so they wrote up a, a must have been a very uh, well-written justification for why they wanted to hire two uh, case managers. And they were provided with the uh, request for approval the first time around, which usually for, with a bureaucracy, it's kind of hard to get something approved without it being sent back and then saying, you know, give us more reason why you need to have this. Um, and they actually, they got an answer within three weeks, which again, that's kind of unheard of. Um, so. And I also should mention, too, that at the, at the time, we were hired by the pain clinic, usually in, in an a institution like Stanford, UCSF, any you know, medical university. The social work case management departments department are the ones who do the hiring for the different clinics and the service lines. But in this case, the pain clinic was going to do the hiring, and they were also, and they still do, pay us out of their budget instead of the social work case management department paying us. Um, the one thing that did change, though, when we were hired is because of they're not, they weren't quite sure how to supervise us, they did transition us so we report to the social work case management department. That's where we get our supervision, our uh, performance evals, all that. But we have a dotted line to the pain clinic, and they are the ones who, uh, who pay our salaries. So the general triggers for referring patients. Um, oh, and the staff, um, originally it was going to be the staff and doctors and pain psychologists who identified patients with the highest complexity, uh, either clinical or psychosocial or both. Um, and then we um, also, originally it was going to be because of the Press-Ganey scores that are, are, when we were hired on, it was to help bring those scores up. And then also... Um, some of you may know about CHOIR, um, if you've heard about it with Stanford. Um, it's our Collaborative Health Outcomes Information Registry. It's a data collection software developed by the Stanford Pain Division. Um, I am nowhere 
an expert on, on choir, and so I'm not going to touch on it too much. But it does, I did include the, um, the website for it if you wanted to know more information and, and also look into any kind of licensing agreement. It's at the bottom there, choir.stanford.edu. Um, but it usually, it, it was based on promise scores. That was the original trigger that we were going to, uh, those patients that had the highest scores in certain areas like depression, anxiety, social isolation, um, you know, based on promise, which are the patient reported outcomes measurement information system. Um, and, and we do get cases sometimes that our, our patients report high scores in choir. Um, but now, since we've been in the role three years, um, there's other ways that we get referred cases that aren't necessarily just always from choir. Um, okay. So then we wanted to talk about how we um, assess the patient when we become involved. And so being that we are a multidisciplinary clinic and our treatments are multifaceted, um, we also view patients from a pretty wide biopsychosocial lens um, when assessing them and really look at each area and how that area um, may be um, contributing to their pain, maybe maintaining their pain, maybe increasing their pain, and in some cases maybe um, positive decreasing their pain. So just starting from the psychological um, aspect, we have noted, um, and it's hard to say sometimes what comes first, the chicken or the egg, but we do have a lot of patients um, that um, are struggling um, with high levels of depression, um, PTSD, um, and anxiety. So that is always obviously part of our assessment. As I mentioned before, we are um, very mindful about um, suicidal um, and homicidal ideation in relation to our um, group of patients um, as they're often coming to us, you know, in a lot of pain, um, both psychological and, <laughs> and medical, um, and um, feeling, you know, pretty um, hopeless. So that's an important thing that we, we assess for. Um, other stuff that it won't go into grave, de uh, grave detail about is obviously um, cognitive deficits or histories of traumatic brain injury and how that may affect patients' understanding and compliance with the treatment plan. Um, clearly, um, substance use and abuse. Um, is that something that's in the forefront? And if so, is it something that needs to be looked at first before we can continue um, with our, our treatment at the pain clinic? Um, social, um, housing stability, and I'll just touch, I know we're starting to run out of time. I didn't realize how much actually there was to say. <laughs> um, housing stability actually has been very, um, in the past couple of months, I've had multiple patients that are living out of their cars. Um, we are, obviously, we're in the Bay Area, in Silicon Valley, um, where pricing of housing is skyrocketed, um, and for the middle class, um, working even working person, it's it's hard to afford housing. And so, we I have met with a lot of patients who will come in and clearly um, are are living out of their cars, and that feeds into pain because how are you sleeping in your car? The stress of not having housing, um, which moves into our financial stability. Um, 
social support, a huge one that we look at. Who are the people um, that are in our patients' lives? Um, is it a positive um, group of social support? Um, or is it, is it a group of social support that's kind of pulling on the patient? Um, are they isolated and alone um, in, their, in their pain? Do they have people around who can help? Um, the quality of our patients' relationships um, and employment status. Um, we have a lot of patients that um, may end up no longer working because of their pain condition and how that affects their insurance um, and, you know, their financials. Um, and, the, and then just some, I'll talk a little further later on about CPS and um, Child Protective Services and Adult Protective Services intervention. We look at the health system. Um, well, that just went on. Um, the health insurance coverage um, and reimbursement for needed services, um, access and barriers to care. Um, a big question, do our patients have a current primary care physician? Um, we are a tertiary care center and you know, frequently um, work in, in, as in a consultative role. Um, where we will do an assessment and then have a number of recommendations that often a primary care physician um, will then follow through with. So it's crucial that the patient has an active primary care physician. Um, we look at the relationship with the primary care physician. We have a lot of patients, as I was mentioning before, that are coming to us because that relationship has been strained um, or um, is coming toward an end. So sometimes we will get patients and we think that the primary care is going to continue to be involved and come to find out that relationship is now over. <laughs> and we need, um, Susan and I work with that patient to obtain um, a new primary care physician. Ability to obtain appointments, ability to get appointments, um, and the huge one is the communication and collaboration between um, providers. We note that um, with our patient population, um, they see... Um, multiple care providers from multiple different services and um, how important it is to make sure that everyone is on the same page with the treatment plan. Um, this is another one that um, I have this magnet up on the wall in my office, but complex care case managers don't always wear capes. And I don't know if you could read all this. Um, the Supergirl cape is at the laundry. You'll just have to take my word for it. Um, so a bit of the history, um, we can pass that one up. Um, and some of the responsibilities of the, of the case manager in the pain clinic include, move back? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, so when Susan and I first started the, this position, we actually were developing what is this role at the pain clinic. Um, it's out of order. But so, um, so Starting out by saying um, providing coordination of care with the primary care physician, which we were talking about is so important um, to have, as well as other specialists in the Stanford healthcare community and community providers. Um, attend patients' appointments at the pain clinic to facilitate better understanding. This is something I really like to do with my patients. I like to meet with them before the appointment because I want to hear what's going on. I want to understand what they're hoping for from the appointment, what are the crucial things they need to have addressed. We realize that some of these appointments, our return patient appointments, could be 30 minutes. So I want that time to be able to be used effectively and to really be able to maximize that time. And I also want to make sure that the patient 
feels that what they came for was answered. So I'll meet with the patient before um, the, the doctor comes in. Um, then when the doctor is in, um, I remain in the room because I want to hear about um, the treatment plan and what is currently being proposed. Um, is we I mean, think about my own self. When you're in an appointment and it's about you, sometimes you don't hear everything or you don't hear it accurately. So it's helpful to have another set of ears in the room. Um, who, who clearly hears what the recommendations are, because often patients will call us after the appointments with questions and concerns, or maybe they even a discrepancy, like this, they heard one thing, um, and that's maybe not what was said in the appointment. So it's, it's important as well to kind of cut down on, on splitting as well, splitting behavior. Um, and Finally, um, is assisting in navigating patients' health plans. Um, so we, we like to help um, explain to patients um, what their health plans can cover for them, um, how to find out what their health plans will cover for them. Um, often we will communicate with the health plan directly um, for instance, if we, we have a patient who has Medi-Cal, which is California's version of Medicaid, and we know that they may not cover a service, um, Susan and I will work as an advocate to really push for an authorization for that service that we feel is needed and potentially not provided by Medicaid. Um, now we have assistance in just navigating the various financial programs that we have through our own Stanford healthcare system. Um, often we may find out that a patient's insurance will not cover something like a pain psychology evaluation. Um, so we will talk with patients about how to apply through Stanford for financial assistance so that they can um, find a way to afford maybe a one-time consultation and be able to move forward with those recommendations. Um, as we, we discussed, assisting with um, crisis management is a really big one in our population. Um, we meet with a lot of patients, you know, who are in a lot of distress. They may be experiencing acute psychiatric symptoms, um, suicidal or homicidal ideation, um, or domestic violence. Just in a quick reflection, my second week at the pain clinic, um, I was called down to the clinic um, after we had had a 60-year-old um, uh, female who had come to our clinic um, all over body pain during the appointment um, became very clear that this patient was quite depressed and that that was the primary issue that was going on. And then when further asked, this, uh, the patient um, talked about um, wanting to end her life in very specific plans on how to do that, including access to a loaded firearm at home. So this was my second week, so I was glad I had worked on psychiatry. Um, so I was uh, called down to the clinic. Um, we made sure staff remained with the patient. I met with the patient as well to hear, further assess and hear what was going on um, in that scenario and um, clearly made a decision to call um, 911. Um, I discussed with the patient what was happening through the process. Um, and why, and the patient was clear that she did not feel safe to return home. So we did call 911 and um, had the police come out, 
Unfortunately, during our report, it was misunderstood. They thought there was a weapon in the clinic, so we had a whole team come flying in, um, again, sat with the patient through that process, um, really to just settle her down and explain what had happened, um, and, and patient ended up being um, transferred to an inpatient psychiatry um, facility. Just a quick example of how that sometimes comes into play and how we um, play a role in, um, in you know, calling um, 911 and getting that 50, 5150, which is a psychiatric hold um, in California is what it's called, um, initiated and things moving. Um, other, just in a quick, quick, quick case presentation about um, how does domestic violence play play out? Um, I had a 40-year-old um, woman who presented um, to the clinic, had chronic neck pain, um, but this day was reporting acute neck pain. Um, as the um, provider was discussing what was going on with her neck, it became apparent that she had been in, involved um, in a uh, domestic argument where she had been assaulted um, and that this was the cause of the neck, um, the neck pain. So I was called down into that situation as well um, to meet with the patient, to provide her with domestic violence resources, come up with a safety, an immediate safety plan, um, assess if there were children in the home, which there were at the time. So it went also from domestic violence to child protective service reporting. Um, and... I think that was one of my first months, actually, at the pain <laughs> clinic. So these are just to give you examples of how we kind of are in action at the clinic. Mm -hmm. Finally, we um, also have, been, have provided in-services to the pain clinic staff. In particular, we did an, um, around suicidality because we were noting we were getting a lot of patients who were either calling into the clinic and maybe during an appointment um, expressing hopelessness um, or suicidality. Uh, maybe it was during an appointment, maybe it was after the appointment. Um, so we gave an in-service to um, our nursing staff and our medical assistants about how to recognize um, signs and symptoms of suicidality and what to do with that when they hear it, which basically, depending on the role in the clinic, um, would be to contact us um, immediately so that we could do a further assessment. We've also done in services on um, the End of Life Act, um, caregiver support resources, um, and oh, and I moved to COFIS, um, another role um, complex care case management has participated in is co-facilitating um, various pain management classes and groups. Um, for me, I had expressed interest in wanting to do a little more additional clinical work um, as a social worker and had discussed this with our pain psychologists um, and so was able to um, assist in the pain management um, coping skills follow-up groups, um, which um, is a follow-up to our, our nine-week class series that's run by our pain psychologists. Um, I did a chronic pain self-management program. I led that with one of our MAs. Um, and more recently, I'm working in collaboration. We have an interdisciplinary um, 
group therapy that's three, three times a week intensive program called Regain, where um, myself is, I'm doing the wellness portion of it. So it's, it's focused on physical therapy, pain psychology, and wellness. So run wellness groups on various topics, um, such as um, what, social support systems, mindfulness, um, coping, um, coping skills that are adaptive, coping skills um, that are maladaptive, gratitude. Um, and finally, we participate in research studies. Um, we have a new group, if some of you um, saw Dr. Darnell's group or also the one with uh, the workshop in the afternoon with Dr. Darnell and Dr. Mackey and Dr. Cow. We have a new study through PCORI called Empower that we will be helping out with as well as some other research uh, programs some of the other doctors are coming up with. So, um, so again, we're the point of contact person in the patient's care. We work in coll close collaboration with the attending physicians in evaluation of new patient referrals. And we provide referrals to the appropriate res community resources such as mental health services, substance abuse programs, um, pain and other support groups, addictionology support, um, and some of the other things. What's not an appropriate referral to a case manager are patient billing questions. Um, in those situations, patient can be referred to financial assistance. Um, we cannot assist patient in finding a job. We've had referrals like that. Um, we're not trained vocational rehab counselors, and unfortunately it would be too time intensive to try and help a patient find a job, but we can give them community resources for job finding assistance. Um, we also don't obtain authorizations for treatment. We can uh, uh, deal with the insurance company in helping with the process, but we're not actually the ones who obtain it. Um, we don't write letters of medical necessity. Um, we can help the MDs in, in formulating those, but we don't actually uh, do those. Um, also, we're dedicated to the pain clinic patients, um, not to, the, to become their community social workers or case managers. We can connect them again with community resources. Sometimes their patients think we can help them with their laundry list of problems, which uh, a community social worker or case manager could handle more appropriately. Um, and in isolated situations, we'll assist with family members um, if they're impacting the patient's ability to deal with pain, if the, if the situation's causing too much um, stress and anxiety, which can exacerbate and cause a pain flare, we'll see if we can help out with resources to help with the family members. Um, again, those are the referrals we get in about a three-week period. Not all, we don't see all those patient referrals that come in. I mean, we see the referrals, we don't see all the patients. Um, again, since we've this role has started, our Prescani scores have gone up um, and our patient complaints have gone down. The red line is the, is the patient complaint. We're probably now down about one complaint a day where maybe we had maybe three to five a day. Um, and usually they're complaints that are beyond our control, like traffic or, or something like that. Um, let's see. And in conclusion, who says social work is stressful? Um, <laughs> we can definitely get stressed out there. So again, in, in wrapping up, with, with being a complex care case manager, it, you do need a great deal of experience, extensive amount of, of um, uh, definitely have a master's or a nursing degree. Um, at least five years experience, um, be very good communicators, have clinical knowledge. Um, as Karen mentioned, even though she's a social worker, she's worked in a lot of clinical environments and picked up the language and picked up knowledge of, of clinical practices. 
um, be able to time manage, um, be able to do decision making and problem solving. I, as I call ourselves, we're the problem solvers or the gap fillers. Um, be organized. Um, we do work a great deal autonomously, so we, we do, and we prefer it that way. We don't want someone micromanaging, um, and we just want our managers or whoever available if we have a question, but otherwise, let us do our job. Um, we have to be good at conflict resolution, obviously work as a team, that's very important, and we do have a wonderful team in our pain clinic. I'm very happy to be working there because we do have a, a close-knit group of people. Um, be able to delegate, like with the billing, say, no, I, I don't handle that, I can refer you on to financial assistance. Um, be politically savvy, which is pretty much basic for any work environment. Have a great deal of tolerance. Um, be a role model, not only for the patients, but also for the staff within the clinic of how to handle patients when they're upset and how to be a good communicator and how to recognize suicidal ideation. Um, have a commitment to our patient and what the goals of the clinic as well as the goals of the patient's treatment plans. Be able to do teaching and cultural sensitivity. We do, living in the Bay Area, we see people from all walks of life and so sometimes Fortunately, in our background experience, we've had a lot of training in, in cultural differences, and sometimes that factors into how to communicate with the patient and how to get their, what, how they're going to respond to some of the recommendations being made to them. Um, so again, it's a combination of these skills and flexibility, um, and it, it's just want to get through this. And this is our last slide. Um, as you can see, Karen and I are probably the three-year veteran. Um, you know, but not today for a Not today, no, no, no. But I mean, it's, it's like one year you're getting that, uh, after one year of working with pretty complex patients, um, it, it's, you get that crazy-eyed look. Um, two years, things get pretty intense, um, but after the three-year, you're like, oh, who cares? You know? <laughs> <laughs> I've seen this before, I can deal with it. So um, anyways, I, I appreciate, I, we've probably kept you a little bit longer than we anticipated, but if you, anybody has any questions, uh, we, we can stay a little bit afterwards and hopefully give you some answers. I'm, I'm sure everybody.